Yeah. Well, that kind of welcome, I can quit right now, you know. Good morning. My name is Bills, and I am an alcoholic. By the grace of God, I'm sober this morning, and that's the single most important thing that I will tell you today, that it is by the grace of a loving God. And people like you in rooms like this that have kept this drunk sober for a number of 24 hours, and for that I'm eternally grateful. And it's great to be here. Thank you. <clears throat> it's great to be here for our, our first trip to Nebraska, uh, and I, I, I thank uh, Peggy and Dick for inviting us. Uh, first met Peggy a couple of years ago, and uh, we got lost together in Nashville, Tennessee, while we were out touring. And uh, in Tyler, Texas, we got lost together while we were out riding around. And it's hard to get lost in Tyler, Texas. So, Peggy, be deciding where we're going to get lost in Omaha today, you know. And they say that it's never too late to make amends to people, and uh, even when people don't know that they need amends made to them. Um, there's, there's a man here that I carried a resentment against for the first three or four years of my sobriety. Uh, and, and I said if I ever found him and could lay my hands on him, I was going to kill him. Because my sponsor made me read page 448 through 452 of the big book so damn many times. But, Paul, thank you. It has saved my life so many times, and I thank you for it. When I first came to the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, virtually on my hands and knees, I, um, I began to hear talk about a thing called an alcoholic personality. And being a rather analytical person that I am, I began to ask, what is an alcoholic personality? And I got about a hundred different answers, none of which I understood at all, made no sense whatsoever. Until one day an old-timer said, son, I want to tell you a little story that I think will make you understand. And I want to share that story with you this morning. And if you've heard it before, guess what? You're going to hear it again. It's the story of the little drunk stumbling along the beach one day, and he found lying in the sand at his feet a bottle, half buried in the sand, washed up on the shore. And he picked it up and he uncorked it in hopes of finding a few stray drops in the bottom, and instead, something very weird happened. Suddenly, there was a puff of smoke, and in an in instant, there standing in front of him in the sand was a man about 11 feet tall with a huge turban around his head. And he looked down at the little drunk, and he said, I am your genie. You have three wishes. Well, the little drunk rubbed his eyes and blinked and looked again. I mean, he'd had some bad DTs, but he'd never seen anything like this. He said, what is your first wish? The little drunk didn't think very long. He said, I'd like to have a bottle of bourbon that's never empty. Another flash, another puff of smoke, and in the sand in front of him was a jug of bourbon, and he uncorked it, took one whip, and knew it was the good stuff. He tilted it up, took a swallow. Yep, it was the good stuff, all right. He took about three or four good gulps from it, tilted it down, and looked at it, and it was still right to the top. He tilted it back. He chugged at it for about 45 seconds, most he'd had in a week took the bottle down and looked at it. It was still right to the top. Couldn't miss a drop. The genie asked him, is that okay? He said, that's wonderful. He said, you have two more wishes. What would you like? He said, I want two more, just like this one. <laughs> now, if you understand that story, you're probably in the right place this morning. 
Because I'm going to tell you, you go out here on the streets of Omaha and you stop somebody on the street and you tell them that little story and they'll look at you funny and say, well, if this one's never going to be, why would he, you know, <laughs> they don't understand. And thank God I've quit trying to make them understand. All that's important to me is that I understand today. And even more important than that, I know that you understand. And the most important is that I have a loving God who understands. My story begins, uh, last night I leaned over to my wife as Bob spoke, I said, you know, he's covering the first 15 to 20 minutes of my talk, and, but isn't it true of all of us? I be- grew up in a very small town in North Georgia. I mean, little, tiny, small town. On, on Saturday night in our little town, it was said there were three things you could do on Saturday night. You could watch them unload the truck at the A&P. You could watch the water tank leak. Or you could go across the river into South Carolina and buy some beer. And I did not get to the doors of AA from too much water tank watching. <laughs> I um, My story really goes back before I took that first drink. Because even before then, for as long back as I can remember, I was a very, very scared little boy that never fit in anywhere. And I tried ever so hard. Very early on, I developed a gigantic ego that told me on the outside I am better than, but on the inside I knew I was less than anybody. Uh, I was petrified of people. My mother would send me to the grocery store to, to buy something, and, and, and I didn't know where it was in the store, and I would wander up and down the aisles for 30 minutes rather than stop somebody and ask them where to find this or that for fear of re- being rejected. My father died when I was five years old, and um, without that influence in my life to help me develop, I stayed that scared little boy for a long, long time, less than everybody. But something happened when I was 15 years old, either under peer pressure or curiosity or whatever, when the question was asked of me one Saturday night of, hey, you want to go over to South Carolina with us and get some beer and and come back and sit on the banks of the river and and, and have something to drink? And I said, sure. And we went across the old muddy Savannah River to South Carolina and we got a case of beer and the, the five or six guys of us, I came back and sat on the bank of the Savannah River and I had my first drink. And it was the single most vile, putrid, god-awful, horrible-tasting stuff I had ever put in my mouth. Only drank six that night. (laughs) Because, you see, somewhere between the second and the third beer, something happened. Suddenly, little Billy Sanders wasn't afraid anymore. And I was suddenly handsomer, smarter funnier, sexier, and whatever else I could think of than I'd ever been in my life. And I immediately fell in love with that horrible tasting stuff. I thought, for the magic it does, I can take the taste. Well, through high school, I drank uh, periodically only because of the... um, uh, the determination not to get caught. But when I went off to college 40 miles away from my little town to uh, Athens, Georgia, and um, 
I went to the University of Georgia where the population of the school was twice that of the population of my whole hometown. And I enjoyed my first taste of anonymity. Nobody cared how much I drank. Nobody noticed how much I drank. So I drank every day. And I discovered uh, very quickly that liquor was quicker than beer and tasted better, too, at least in my mind. And uh, so I developed uh, new tastes. Besides, I liked the class, you know, those the crystal stemware and, 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 and ice cubes and the olives bobbing around in there. Suddenly, I had added to all of those other errs that I was a while ago, classier. And... Um, that comes into play a little bit later on in my story, because somewhere along the way, it sort of started disappearing. A lot of people talk about their college careers with great fond recollections of the, the, the great times they had at college and the fraternities and all of the, the excitement of the football weekends and all that. A lot of my college career is a big foggy blur, because I was rarely sober during the years I was in college. I also stayed in a great deal of trouble when I was in college. Um, so much so that the dean of men's office at the University of Georgia had a bench outside of his office that was often referred to as the Bill Sanders bench. Because I sat on, sat on it with more regularity than anyone else. And it's a clue to you when the dean's secretary, when you walk in upon the suggestion of someone else in the university to see the dean, and she steps to his door and said, he's here. I found out they're not patriotic at the University of Georgia. I was nearly thrown out of the school for singing our national anthem. Of course, it was to an empty flagpole at uh, 3 o'clock in the morning in front of the college hospital. I also got almost thrown out of school for performing a great tradition of the university, and that's the ringing of the chapel bell. They always do that after... Uh, Georgia wins a ball game. They ring the chapel bell all night, and uh, I almost got thrown out of um, school for doing that. Uh, of course, then it was Easter Sunday morning, and it wasn't the dean of men who came after me. It was the mayor of Athens. But um, there are a lot more stories, but uh, I, 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 I'll, I'll spare you those. But in the junior year of my uh, uh, college career, I got the job that, uh, or, or an internship, a chance to work at the dream uh, job that I had wanted all of my life. You see, when I was 13 years old, I went into the profession that I've been in for the last uh, uh, almost 36 years, uh, and that's the broadcasting business. I became what was then touted to be the youngest disc jockey in the country at the age of 13. And then when I was in college as a junior, I got a chance to go from the, uh, uh, the mass media school at the University of Georgia to do an internship at the big 50,000-watt Clear Channel Voice of the South, WSB, in Atlanta. It was a dream come true. Only two internships were given that year, and the two that received them, as fate would have it, were me and my roommate. And in the spring of that year, my roommate and I made the trip of 60 miles or so from uh, Athens to Atlanta, and we went to the station and met the people we would be working with that summer on that internship. They were all, of course, celebrities to us. We went to, uh, found an apartment to live in and got all of the arrangements made for what was to be the dream summer of our lives. And then decided to celebrate and have a few more drinks and we had quite a few. I'm, I'm positive today that I had far more than he. And we journeyed back to Athens and, uh, returned the car to the friend we had borrowed it from and, uh, decided to celebrate some more in his apartment and have a few more drinks. And so we drank 
And um, as I was prone to do, started acting like the total imbecilic clown. And uh, I jumped up, and the, the friend's apartment that we were in had a, an old antique gun collection on the wall, uh, about 20, 25 old uh, guns. And I took down an old long-barrel Colt twenty-two pistol, and I cocked it and pointed it at my roommate and said, stick him up, and he threw his hands up in mock surrender, and and I pulled the trigger. And there was a sound like thunder, and in a moment, my roommate was lying on the floor in front of me in a pool of blood. A few hours later at an Athens hospital, they would tell us that Wayne would live, but that he would never walk again. The bullet had severed his spine. Strange thing happened in a hospital room that night. In the early hours of that next morning, my roommate put his hand on my arm and he looked up at me and he said, Don't blame yourself. This was an accident. It could just as easily have been me. He forgave me immediately, but I didn't forgive me for more than 20 years. I would use it as an excuse to crawl into the bottle and live. That summer, I went on to that internship, and he went to an Atlanta hospital where he went through surgery after surgery in vain attempt to restore the use of his legs. Unfortunately, it was not to happen. And I began a cycle. I would get up, go to work at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, I would work through the 11 o'clock news at night, and when the 11 o'clock news was over, I and several others would head across the street to a bar in a hotel and start drinking. And I would drink until 3 and 4 and 5 o'clock in the morning, stumble out into a cab, home to that lonely, dismal apartment, sleep it off as best I could until about 2 in the afternoon, get up and start the same cycle all over again, all summer long. The summer that was to have been a dream come true is a blurry nightmare. But that fall back in school, it all came together. But suddenly I didn't even have that cycle to work on anymore. And pretty soon after school started in the fall of my senior year, I put together a uh, plan. I began to go to the infirmary, the hospital of the uh, university, and tell them I was having trouble sleeping. And they would prescribe for me some sleeping pills, and I'd go down the hall to the pharmacy and fill them and then the next day I would come back and see another doctor, and there were three doctors, and I just kept rotating between them until I amassed a pretty good cache of pills. And then I waited until one Friday afternoon when my new roommate was headed home for the weekend, and I set my plan into motion. I stood at the window of the dormitory, and I watched as his car pulled out of the parking lot and into the street and headed for the outskirts of town, going home for the weekend. And I closed the curtains sat down on the side of the bed, dumped what was later determined to be between 50 and 60 sleeping pills out on the nightstand, popped them in one by one, turned out the light and pulled up the covers. And for more than 20 years, I believed with every bit of fiber in me, Bob's lie detector wouldn't have moved an inch on me, that that was a great big coincidence that my roommate's car broke down at the city limits of Athens and had to be towed back. And he came into that dormitory room and saw the bottle, saw the bed, and put it all together pretty quickly. I say that I, I thought it was a big coincidence because I don't believe in coincidences anymore. I love the definition I heard a few years ago that a coincidence is a miracle in which God chooses to remain anonymous. And I think that it was the first of many times when the loving God that you people have introduced me to looked down and said, Big boy, I'm not through with you yet. 
I say many times because of all of the, the crashed automobiles and the other insane behavior that was to happen in the years to come. I, um, I finally exited the University of Georgia, and I did it with a diploma in hand. I have never been completely sure or not of whether I earned it or if they just had enough. I'm not going to question it because I've gotten accustomed to seeing that thing hanging around. Eventually, I ended up about uh, 40 miles from uh, Athens in a town of Gainesville, Georgia. And uh, I went to work for a radio station there. And I thought, you know, I'm going to become one of those pillars of the community now. And I did. I got my job. I joined the church. I became a Boy Scout leader. I got involved in community and civic organizations. I joined a local fraternal club that had a bar. And you know where I spent most of my time? Um, in that bar. And uh, a few months later, I met a beautiful girl. And uh, it wasn't too long after that that we got engaged. And I said, well, I'm going to have to clean my act up. I know I'm going to have to drink less. But a wonderful thing happened. I discovered I didn't. She liked to drink just as much as I did. And so we began to frequent that little club every night. And eventually we got married. And every afternoon we go to the to the club about uh, 5.30 in the afternoon and we would stay there until about 1 or 1.30 in the morning and close the place down. And then we'd go home and sleep it off. Now, most people, when they get up in the mornings and uh, they go to work, if uh, they tied one on and they're hung over, the person at the next desk or maybe the boss or maybe the person across the hall is kind of aware of the state you're in. You know, we thought we fooled people, but we didn't. Uh, but i got to tell you something. When you're on the radio and you sign a radio station on the air at 6 o'clock in the morning after you've gotten about three hours of sleep and, and your mouth tastes like the bottom of a birdcage, <laughs> and I would get a record introduced and it would start playing, and if my audience could have heard me over the microphone that I had turned off, they would have heard me praying. They would have heard me saying, God, thank you that this isn't television. <laughs> That's hell, folks. Of course, if I was 20 minutes late getting the radio station on the air, uh, everybody in North Georgia knew it. And by the time I left that town, most of them knew why, because my reputation got around. But our marriage rocked along, and we had a great drinking partnership. And, of course, it took precedence in our lives. And then one day my wife announced to me we were going to have a baby. And we both decided we needed to clean our act up. We need to stop drinking, and we needed to stay home and start putting together a home instead of a house that we stopped off in between work and, and the bar. And we made a, a vow that we were going to do that. And I don't need to tell any of you about how long the vow lasted. Virtually not at all, because after the baby came, it was a matter of weeks until we found the great American institution called a babysitter, and we were back at the bar every single night drinking until one or two o'clock in the morning. And I know now that it was then that that marriage began to crumble. Piece by piece, it began to came, come apart. You know, I, I've heard people say that when they came to AA, that their marriage had fallen apart because of lack of communication. Now, that I don't relate to. Because my wife and I communicated. You could ask our neighbors four doors down the street. And they would tell you the Sanders communicate. And they could probably tell you what we were communicating about. And there was a pattern to this communication. 
Usually we would start off at about so many decibels and it would go up from there. And I would hang in there with the best of them until I started to lose. Now, when I started to lose the argument, my attitude is, I'm not going to stand here and take this. I'd grab my bottle, charge out the door, jump in the car, squeal out the driveway, head up the street. I'm out of here. I don't have to listen to this abuse. One Sunday afternoon, we got into one of our uh, communications discussions. And uh, I reached a point where it was apparent that I was on the losing end of this thing. And uh, so I grabbed my bottle, tore out the back door, jumped in the car, squealed out of the driveway, tore up the street. I was out of there. Like any other Sunday afternoon discussion. Except for one thing. That Sunday I still had my pajamas on. <laughs> well, my wife did what any sweet, loving, caring, thoughtful, sharing wife would do. She called a friend to come get me and bring me home. The only thing wrong with that is the friend happened to be a police captain. <laughs> and he found me sitting in the parking lot of the Holiday Inn, minding my own business, talking to my bottle. And he tapped on the window. And he suggested that I come get in the car and go home with him. And I told him he could. I said, no, thank you. And, um, and uh, then he began to tell me about his relative size to mine and his Marine Corps wrestling career and the, re- and, and, and the impact that that billy club on his hip had when it hit. And the more he talked, the more sense it made that I might want to consider going with him. I mean, I was drunk, but I wasn't stupid. Well, I got in the I got in the the, the the police car with him, and and we started out, and I knew in about two turns we were not headed toward my house. In about two more turns, I knew exactly where we were headed because we pulled into the emergency room parking lot of Hall County Hospital. And uh, he came around, opened the door, and 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 let me out, and we went in the back door of that hospital. And man, before you could even blink, I was checked into that hospital in a room upstairs. I'm gonna tell you something. You won't believe how fast you can get checked in a hospital when you already got your pajamas on. They don't want some fellow who's standing there weaving back and forth in his pajamas standing around in the lobby. So next time you got to go to the hospital and you're worried about all those insurance questions and paper, just go in your pajamas and they'll get you right on upstairs. And I, I got to I got to to start my first real exercise in major denial during that hospital stay because uh, something happened that I was not to come to my senses about until I started into the fourth step after I got to you people. And uh, when I started writing that fourth step, which I thought was a pretty stupid exercise to begin with, I told my sponsor I had lived that. I didn't need to write it. Let's just get on with five, and I ain't going to tell you what he said. But when I started writing that, suddenly I remembered something that I had conveniently forgotten for uh, almost 20 years. And that was that afternoon in that hospital. Oh, the, the, the part I'd forgotten is that when I came here, I had the worst case of I nevers of anybody that I think ever darkened the doors of AA. My sponsor called it my other disease. He said, your damn terminal uniqueness. 
But but one of the things, one of the I nevers I had is that I said I'd never been put in a hospital for being drunk like so many of you people. I said I wasn't that bad. You know, how I many of you had you know the that bads? Uh, and 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 it was a lie because I had in my denial had conveniently forgotten something. Here's how it happened. That Sunday afternoon. My wife and my minister and the police friend and the doctor, and they may have brought in some people off the street, I don't know, uh, had a little powwow, and they decided Bill is sort of a celebrity in town, and everybody knows him from the radio, and the newspaper would love to get a hold of the fact that he came in here in his pajamas and got put in detox and all that. So they said, what we'll do is we'll put him up in a regular room in the hospital, and we'll put a sign on the door or a clipboard that says that he's in here being treated for strep throat, and then we can detox him just like everybody else. It won't be any problem. Well, when I'd have checked out of there a few weeks later, I thanked every nurse and doctor that I could find for the wonderful job they'd done of curing my strep throat. And I believed it. I believed it until I had to start writing that fourth step down and some semblance of honesty started coming out. Well, needless to say, the sun did not set on the day that I got out before I was drinking again. And the days and the weeks and the months rocked on. And our marriage got crazier and more insane. And my little girl was beginning to grow up. And we did the great American alcoholic tradition of the geographical cure and moved back to Atlanta. And uh, I got involved in a, a part of the business uh, involving a thing called public relations. And I didn't even know what public relations was. But there were some aspects of it that I got to like very quickly. One was an institution that they had in Atlanta that they didn't have in that smaller town that I we lived in called uh, uh, a three-martini lunch. I thought four was better, but you call it whatever you wanted to. And um, there was another thing that they had called a happy hour. They didn't have that in those towns either. A happy hour is where you went in, you sat down, and you ordered a drink, and they brought you two. I mean, I mean they were really sitting there in front of you. A lot of times I saw two drinks, but... They really brought them, and they were there in front of you. And 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 I discovered if you extended lunch, and if you went to happy hour early, and if you pushed hard, you could make the two meet, and you didn't have to go back to work in the afternoon. And that suited the people that worked for me fine, because something had started to happen, you see. My disease had started its downward spiral. You see, I wasn't all that funny and witty and smart anymore. I was surly and argumentative and angry. And the person that came to came to work in the morning, if I was halfway sober, which is usually about what I was halfway sober, was a reasonably nice guy. But the one that came back from lunch after five or six or eight or ten drinks wasn't so nice anymore. And I began staying in the bars later at night. And I didn't notice that um, it even reached the point my wife didn't ask where I was anymore when I'd come in at one or two or three or four o'clock in the morning. She didn't even ask when I didn't come home at all where I'd been. She didn't care. I didn't notice that my little girl, who was then getting to be five and six and seven years old, didn't invite friends home to spend the night anymore because she never knew when Dad was going to come in in the middle of the night in a drunken rage, smashing furniture and kicking the screens out of television sets and demanding that she clean up her room at 3 o'clock in the morning or some other insane behavior. 
I didn't notice that the only look in her eyes was one of fear and of hate and of disgust. I didn't notice that she avoided me at all costs. I didn't notice any of those things because that was not a priority in my life. My priority in life was that bottle. And I lived for those bars. And I said for many years that I was a social drinker. But I'm going to tell you this morning, I believe with all of my heart, that if you have to drink in order to be social, you are not a social drinker. And I had to drink in order to be social. I had to go to a lot of cocktail parties as part of work. I thought it made all the sense in the world to have three or four before you went to the party to have a drink. I had to. I would drive all over Atlanta at three and four o'clock in the morning looking for another drunk draped over a bar so I would have somebody to blubber to and talk to and buy a round of drinks just to get him to stay there with me. Because you see, I believe that the loneliness of an alcoholic in those last stages of drinking is the loneliest lonely there is on the face of this earth. The sadder thing is that there is no crowd big enough to take that loneliness away. Because you've isolated yourself from everything and everybody in your life. And that was when all the class disappeared. Remember the crystal stemware, the fancy drinks, the olives. Well, I'm going to tell you something. When you wake up at 5 o'clock in the morning peeking out from underneath the bush in a public park in Atlanta, Georgia, and you realize you're looking up the nostrils of a policeman's horse, there ain't no class. And there's no good line for that. That's been, that's been over 15 years ago. And I've still been trying to think of a line I could have used on that policeman and nothing comes. And there's no class when you're splayed over the trunk of a police car, frisked and cuffed and dumped in the back of, over your protests of I couldn't possibly have had that much. And there's no class when you're waking up in strange beds with strange people. In strange towns, and you can't even figure out where you are, or how you got there. There's no class when you have to get up in the morning and you go look out the window to see if your car is still there. And if it isn't, trying to figure out where you might have left it last night. The only thing works is looking out the window and part of your car is there. <laughs> and you're trying to figure out what happened to the rest of it. Well, my wife was going this direction, I was going in this direction, the marriage was gone. And one evening, I'm sitting in my recliner chair at home, nursing my bottle in my hand. My daughter is hidden up in her room somewhere, which is where she stayed most of the time when Dad was home. And my wife left, walked out the door and left. Didn't say where she was going, didn't care. And um, she did a strange thing when she walked in the house about two and a half hours later. She stood in front of me in that recliner chair and said, guess where I've been? And I said, who gives a, who, who cares? Um, and she did something really weird. She didn't say anything. She dumped a white poker chip into my lap. And I looked down at it and I looked up at her and I looked down at it and I looked back up at her and I said, I don't know where you've been, but if that's all you won, you had a lousy night. Well, you people know where she'd been. 
She'd been to an AA meeting, and she told me. And I went into an absolute, flying, perfect rage. Because I knew good and well that that woman was not an alcoholic, couldn't possibly be an alcoholic. Because if she was, then I, and, and, and she just couldn't possibly be an alcoholic. <laughs> and she started going to those meetings every night. Y'all had said something to her about 90 and 90 and 90 and 90 and something. And uh, she was going to those meetings every night and some during the day. And she was coming home at night. And I was grateful for one thing. She didn't try to get me to go to any of those meetings. Not, never said anything about me going to an AA meeting with her. Uh, there were, you know, little clues here and there around the house, like when I lift the toilet seat, there's how it works taped to the... <laughs> Get in bed at night, stick my arm under the pillow, and I pull out this little pamphlet with all them questions in it. And I get to about the third one and go, throw that. But something started happening to her. Suddenly she wouldn't communicate anymore. You ever have tried to have a one-sided fight? It, it, it loses something. She'd go, eh, and walk off. I mean, I was just getting revved up good. Well... Finally, one night it happened. I knew it was going to. I knew it was going to. One night she says, I'm going to pick up a 90-day chip tonight, and I'd like for you to... I said, no. Well, we had a few words and a few tears, and finally I agreed. I said, all right, fine. I'll go on one condition. I can go in my own car. You see, she had this thing she'd do. She'd be gone about two and a half hours those meetings, and, 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 and she'd get... I said, how long are those meetings? They're an hour. Well, you've been gone two and a half hours. Well, we go to Coco's after the meeting and have coffee. Right. <laughs> yeah, I believe that. But anyway, I, wherever it was she was going, I didn't want to go, so I went in my car. And uh, I'd heard her talking about this place. It was a little place on the side of Roswell Road in Atlanta called the 8111 Club. That's because it was at 8111 Roswell Road. You know, they make things simple for us, you know. <laughs> um, I was to learn later. Uh, and I followed her there, and then we went up. It was a, it was a, it was a house sitting back up in the trees off of the road, pretty little house up on the hill, and and it was real funny because I had been by that house several times, uh, probably a thousand times on my way home from the bar, and I, I I noticed every time I'd come by there at night on home that there'd be a bunch of cars there, and it occurred to me that I needed to get to know the guy that lived there because he obviously had a party every night. Well, that night I went to the party. And I walked into the back of that house, and it had all the walls cleared out, so it was a great big meeting room. And, and I sat down right inside of a sliding glass door at the back of the room behind the post. I mean, I didn't want to be seen there. And for the next hour, I witnessed the biggest bunch of loonies I had ever seen in my life. <laughs> there was a guy in that meeting that said, I got five DUIs, DWIs, whatever you folks call them, drunk, drunk driving and everybody in the room broke up. <laughs> Another guy said, I got five DUIs before I got my last white chip, and, and, and not only that, I got arrested for indecent exposure. I thought they were going to fall apart. <laughs> and I got to thinking, if they knew some of the stuff that's happened to me, I could sound like Richard Pryor.
But the main thought that was going through my head that night, and I, I don't ever want to forget it, the main thought that was going through my head was, what are they laughing for? Don't they know what they are? They're alcoholics. They've got nothing to laugh at. I thank God every day of my life for the laughter that happens in these rooms. I think it's one of the greatest cures that we've got. Because I think laughter does more to get the anger and the resentment and the hurt out of us than anything else. And I'm very grateful for it. But that night, I didn't get it. At the end of that meeting, they went through all this little ceremony stuff and they gave her her chip. And then they said, that somebody said something like that the meeting was over and don't tell anybody that you were there and all that stuff. And uh, I got up and thought I was ready to go out the door and somebody grabbed me by the hand from both sides. And... And they said the only thing that was familiar to me at all that night, and that was the Lord's Prayer. Well, I finally broke loose, went out those sliding glass doors, headed across the parking lot, going for my car to get out of that nut house. And something grabbed me by the shoulder that felt like a steel vice and spun me around, and I found myself looking up into the face of a man that looked like he was seven foot eleven. I know today he's only six six, but he looked a lot taller that night. I would remembered him from the meeting. You see, everybody else in that meeting identified themselves by saying, my name's Bob and I'm an alcoholic, or my name's Joe and I'm an alcoholic, or my name's Cliff and I'm an alcoholic. This guy was different. He said, my name's Floyd and I'm a grateful hillbilly drunk. Give me a break. This guy's big strapping, good-looking, black-headed fellow looking down at me in the parking lot, and he starts talking. And he's telling me about drinking moonshine up in the mountains and about getting drunk in the wintertime and falling down and his face freezing to the ground. And they had to pour coffee on him to get him up. And I'm saying, what is he talking about? He don't even know who I am. Found out later he knew exactly who I was because she'd been talking about me in those meetings. <laughs> that guy talked and talked and people, we stand there in the middle of that parking lot and people came out and got in their cars and left and, and he's talking and talking and going on and I'm thinking, this, I had, I had martinis this afternoon at the Diplomat downtown Atlanta, and who is this rube? God. Remember, I went in my own car so I could get out of there. My wife comes out, says, bye, gets in her car and leaves. And it's me and Floyd. He talked for what seemed like an hour and a half. I know today it wasn't but about 20 or 30 minutes. But uh, I finally broke loose and got in my car, and I went home just as fast as I could go. I walked in the back door, walked into the kitchen. My wife said, I said, don't open your mouth. I grabbed a nice tea tumbler about that tall, threw three ice cubes in it, filled it up with vodka, and I said, when we get through, when I get through with this, we'll talk. Of course, you all know when I got through with that, I couldn't talk. But the next day, I made it very clear, don't you ever... Try to get me back into that nut house again. And she didn't. And the downward spiral continued. And I was bankrupt morally.
and physically, and most of all spiritually. And I did not even notice that I was totally alone, because friends were gone, family was gone. It was not until after we got into the your hands to take care of this drunk that uh, in putting a new um, mattress and box springs on our daughter's bed, I was to find in between the mattress and box springs a diary and did what I shouldn't have done and read it. And in it she wrote, if only my daddy was dead, then things might be okay. Dear God, please make my daddy die. I hate him. But if I had read that in those last days, all it would have brought about was a rage of after all I've done for you. Finally, on the afternoon of July 26, 1982, I came out of a week-long blackout drunk. And I was sitting in that recliner chair at home, and in my left hand was an empty vodka bottle, and in my right hand was a twenty-two pistol, loaded and cocked, and I did not remember picking up either one. And the thought that was going through my head was, is this all there is? Is this really all there is? Because if it is, you can have it. I want off. You see, I wasn't afraid of dying anymore. I was afraid of continuing to live like that. I couldn't do it. And through the drunken blur of that Monday afternoon, July 26, 1982, through the haze of that late afternoon, some words came through to me from a tall, strapping, beautiful, wonderful hillbilly drunk named Floyd. I didn't remember anything else he'd said during that session in the parking lot. But one thing he said came through that day. He said, when I came to the doors of AA, I expected God to open up the gates of heaven and let me in. He didn't. But he opened the gates of hell and let me out. When I came to AA, I expected God to open up the gates of heaven and let me in. He didn't. But he opened the gates of hell and let me out. And if where I was that afternoon could be any closer to hell on this earth, I hope to God I never know what it is. And I got up out of that chair and I went into the bathroom and tried to, to clean up as best I could and drank about a half a bottle of mouthwash to get rid of the smell of the alcohol. <laughs> You know how we do. And I got in my car and I drove a few miles back to that little 8111 club up in the trees on the side of Roswell Road. And I walked into the back of the room and sat down behind that same post and peeked around it. And folks, don't ever try to tell me that our God doesn't have a sense of humor. Because sitting there at that table in front of that room chairing that meeting was my wife. She didn't see me till the end of the meeting, and I don't remember much of what was said during that meeting. 
And she didn't see me until I got up at the end of the meeting and took the longest walk I've ever taken in my life from the back of that meeting room up to the front. And somebody pressed a white poker chip into a wet, clammy, trembling hand. And I choose to believe that an old Bill Sanders walked to the front of that room that night and died and that a new one was born and that a miracle happened. Because by the grace of God and through the loving, tender care of people like you in rooms like this who introduced me to a God that I had never known, it has not been necessary for me to take a drink since that night. You told me very early in my sobriety that I needed to get a sponsor. And I decided that uh, I needed to do that in a very methodical way. I went about it very scientifically. I picked the sweetest, kindest, roly-poliest, white-haired old granddaddy type I could find that I knew beyond any shadow of a doubt was going to pat me on the head on a regular basis and say, you're working these steps better than I've ever seen anybody do it. And I asked a man by the name of Doc Crandall to be my sponsor. Biggest mistake I ever made in my life. Because in the years that he was my sponsor, I don't remember him ever telling me one damn thing I wanted to hear. But he told me an awful lot of what I needed to hear. I knew I was in trouble the first day I asked him to be my sponsor. He said, okay, set a few ground rules here. First thing you do every morning, not the second thing. The first thing is you get out on your knees. And you ask the God of your understanding to keep you sober today. And the last thing you do every night before you go to sleep is you get back down there and you say thank you. <clears throat> well, Doc, you see, I grew up going to church when I was a kid. And I know from the last few weeks around here that prayer is an important part of this fellowship. But I just got to be real honest with you. I'm not comfortable with that knee business. He said, son, I didn't say a damn thing about you being comfortable. I said, you, but, you, um, I, I, th I thought this was a program of suggestion. It is. I suggest you do it or get you another sponsor. I knew I was in trouble. He handed me that big blue book. He said, I want you to take this thing home and I want you to read the first few chapters of this book and pointed them out to me and he said, then we're going to sit down and have a talk after you've done that. I said, yes, sir. I got that book. I picked me up a highlighter, four or five sharp pencils, a legal pad. And I went home and I went through that book, highlighting, underlining, making notes, striking out the steps that didn't have anything to do with me. Um, um, on my legal pad, I jotted down the ones I knew y'all had forgotten about and didn't think of. And I went back and I sat down and I said, okay, Doc, ready to talk. He said, good, lay it on me. What have you learned? What, what, what have you found out in that, in studying this stuff? And I opened it to chapter five there and I said, well, Doc, look in here at this first step. As I interpret, and that's as far as I got. <laughs> he said, son, that step don't need your interpreting. It needs your doing. Uh, 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 yeah, but Doc, what, what I think it means is, son, in case you hadn't noticed, they wrote it in English. It says what it means. And if you look closely, you'll see that they put little numbers by it for smart college boys like you. 
That's the way my journey through the steps began. And he led me through them, kicking and screaming and stomping and yelling and hollering and protesting. <clears throat> and I'm working along through those steps, and finally I thought about something. I thought, you know, I'm getting on up here long on these things now. I wonder what's next. I said, by the way, it's dark. What do you do when you get through working these steps? He didn't blink an eye. He said, son, you lay real still because you're dead. And he taught me some wonderful things about those steps. He said, they are a toolbox. And he said, there's nothing in this world that's going to happen to you that you won't find a tool in that box that will help you mend it and put it together again. Uh-huh. I heard that. A few days later, I'd have some crisis going on at work, and, and I'd come and say, Doc, you know, you're a businessman and all that. I can, let me tell you what's going on at work. i got to tell you this, and maybe you can give me, give me a hand. And I'd go through this long litany of what was happening at work and what was going on, and he'd say, what step are you using on it? Doc, this ain't got nothing to do with steps. This is real life stuff. I mean, I need some. Go look again. <sighs> All right. I'd go look and come back. Doc, ain't nothing in those steps about this. I need some advice. And if you can't get, go look again. Third or fourth time, the light would go on. There. Three. Nine, ten. Slowly but surely he taught me that there is absolutely nothing that can happen in this alcoholic's life that the answer does not lie right there in that toolbox. He also taught me that if I don't keep those tools polished and clean, if I don't keep them in regular use, they get rusty. And then when I need them, they're not there for me to use. Learned a great deal from Doc. One of the admonitions he gave to me was one he said... If you get into an argument in your head about whether or not you're going to take a drink, you're going to lose. He said, you can't win that argument. If you get in an argument in your head about whether or not you're going to take a drink, you're going to lose. I heard it here in my head, but I didn't hear it here in my heart. And I had a one of the first business trips I took out of Atlanta. I had to go to Washington, D.C. on business. And my plane hadn't cleared the ground at Hartsfield International Airport in Atlanta until the meeting started up here. 800 miles from home. Nobody's gonna know. Nobody up there knows that you're an Alcoholics Anonymous. The meeting's going on. Yes, no, you can, you can't. Completely forgot about what Doc had told me. All the way to Washington. I mean, that meeting is raging up there. I looked around two or three times in that airplane to see if anybody else could hear it. <laughs> they couldn't. Plane touched down at Hearts, I mean at the National Airport, got out of the plane into a cab, headed for the Hyatt Regency Hotel on Capitol Hill. The meeting's still raging. Out of the cab, into the front door of that giant hotel and into that great big atrium lobby. And my radar, swing, there's the bar, right over there, well there on the other side. I could hear the music, the tinkling of the glasses, calling to me. Took me about five minutes to check in, dump my bags up in that hotel room, come down and stand in the door of that bar. And I stood there for three or four minutes, just standing, as the argument played itself out in my head. And I forgot 
that if you get into an argument in your head about whether or not you're going to take a drink, you're going to lose, and I lost. And I walked over and I sat down at the bar. And the bartender came and stood in front of me, gave a big smile, looked at me for a second, and then said, hi, pal, how about a Coke? About what? He said, I figured by that lapel pin you're wearing, that's what you'd want. I had forgotten to take off that damned AA pin. <laughs> he sat down a Coke, went down, served two or three more people. He came back and stood in front of him again. I'm still sitting there looking at that Coke. <laughs> Ain't moved. He said, you had not got any business in here, do you? No. <laughs> he, said, he said, where you belong is three blocks down the street upstairs over to the furniture store. There's a meeting in 20 minutes. Get the hell out of here. That night... That night after that great meeting in Washington, D.C., that I've been back to a number of times since then, I did two things. First, I went back into a bar in a hotel, and I told a bartender who knew what that little circle with a triangle in it meant, thank you from the bottom of my heart. And he looked at me and smiled. He says, you really weren't in as big a danger as you thought you were in my bar. He said, when I saw you standing in that door, I thought you were looking for somebody. But when you sat down and I saw that pen, I knew what you were doing. And there's no way in hell I was giving you a drink. And the other thing I did that night is I got on my knees beside a hotel room bed. And I said, God, if you went to this much trouble to keep me sober tonight, I will never test you again. And I stay out of bars because I've got no business there. I don't know for sure if I could have stayed sober without the loving care of my kick-butt sponsor, Doc. I'd hate to think of trying it. But on November 25th, 1985, Doc Crandall went on a 12-step call and never came home. A young drunk that he had been working with for several years to try to get him sober had called and Doc and another man had gone to to try to talk with the young fellow, and in a struggle over a shotgun with a suicidal young man, the shotgun discharged, Doc caught it full in the stomach and died on his way to the hospital. And in the lonely hours of that evening in the den of his home, I felt my whole world came crashing down around me. And I said, how can I possibly stay sober without the man who led me into these steps and into this fellowship and who introduced you to me and who put my hand in yours? How can I Survive without him. And in the still quietness of that, that evening, the answer came. You stay sober by doing the things he taught you to do. And the things that his sponsor taught him, and that his sponsor taught him, and his sponsor taught him, all the way back to the night in the little gatehouse when the broken-down doctor and the has-been stockbroker said, Do you think we might stay sober if we help each other.
My granddaddy's sponsor, Doc's sponsor, died a couple of years ago, nine days after his 40th birthday in Alcoholics Anonymous. He was fond of saying that he believed with all of his heart, and I share that belief, that in 1935, God in his infinite wisdom looked down and said, the lowly alcoholic has suffered long enough. I must give him a way out. And what a way he gave us. We could have been locked away for the rest of our lives, as many of us deserve to be. We could have been isolated from the rest of the world and put away like lepers. Or worse. But instead, he gave us each other. And more happiness, and more love, and more joy, and a greater understanding of him than any of us ever imagined. The laughter we share in these rooms is treatment. The fun we have at roundups like this is treatment for a fatal disease. I happen to believe we're the luckiest people on the face of God's earth. I That evening, I felt very alone, even though I knew people were around me, and I had learned something else that Doc had told me was ever so true. He said... Sponsorship goes both ways. And the truth of the matter is, buddy, I get more out of this than you do. And I didn't believe that. I thought it was a nice thing to say, but I didn't buy it. But from that night forward, I buy it. Because I had the greatest, most wonderful, loving sponsorees that the world has ever seen. They gathered around me, and they carried me, and they held my hand, and they led me back to you. They made me talk on the phone when I didn't want to talk. They took me to meetings when I didn't want to go. Little so-and-so just wouldn't leave me alone. <laughs> and I love every single one that I sponsor. There's one I'm sitting right here on the front row this, this, this morning, and I love him with all my heart. What I'm trying to tell you is, and what it used to be like, and what happened, and what it's like now. On July 26, 1982, I came to you. And I gave up and I surrendered and I collapsed in front of you. And I thought, really, life is over and all you're going to teach me is just how to exist. I didn't know that's what I'd been doing, is existing. You people were going to teach me how to live. And I can tell you now, I've had more fun in sobriety than I've ever had in my entire life. It has been ten years since I had to call and say, ask anybody, did I have fun last night? <laughs> I, by God, remember that I had fun last night. And I've met the most wonderful people on the face of this earth. I remember in those days when I used to come in in my drunken rages in the middle of the night and I would do all of the, the things that I did of wrecking the home and screaming and yelling at my child. And the way I made amends back then is the next day I'd get my little girl and I'd take her by the hand and I'd, I'd say, let's go for a walk. And I'd take a walk and I'd say, I know what Dad did last night was terrible and I promise you, Never, ever, ever again am I going to do anything like I did last night. And I didn't notice that there wasn't a remotest hint of belief in her eyes. She knew better. We had taken too many walks and she had heard it too many times. On the 15th day of February of this year, my little girl and I took another walk together. This time it was down the aisle of a church. Dear God, was she beautiful. 
that long, beautiful flight flowing down. Their young, handsome husband to be waiting at the front. The beautiful ceremony. And I cried all the way through it. But those were not when the greatest tears were to come. The greatest tears were to come later at the reception. My little girl had told me a few weeks earlier, Dad, I'm going to have my first dance with Paul, but I want to have the second dance at the reception with you. I said, oh boy. I said, Karen, honey, um, you know, when Dad used to drink, he danced very much like a combination of Fred Astaire and John Travolta. But I've forgotten a lot of that. Uh, tell you what, you better tell me what we're going to dance to so I can practice a little bit. She said, no, Dad, I don't want to tell you what song we're going to dance to. I want it to be a surprise. Oh, boy. Okay. We went to the reception, and I stood on the side of the dance floor as long as several hundred people and watched my little girl dance with her handsome young prince. We love our son-in-law. He's a wonderful kid. I worried a lot about it the first night I took him, when we took him out to dinner. As soon as we sat down, he ordered a beer. And he nursed that thing for two hours. <laughs> and we, when we left, there's still a third of it in the glass. And I said, son, you just ain't never gonna make it in my little club. But we love him. And they look so handsome out on the dance floor. And then their song ended and my little girl came over and stood in front of me. And I put my arms around her and we glided out onto the dance floor and the music began. And the words of the song were, Did you ever know that you're my hero? And to all the things I'd like to be, I can soar like an eagle because you're the wind beneath my wings. What a miracle. From a little girl who had wrote, written about her father, I wish my daddy was dead. Look what you people and this fellowship and this loving God had done. He had brought a family back together and restored the love of a little girl for her father. And I told you how wrecked our marriage was. Well, I need to backtrack just a little. Because that marriage didn't end. And on the day that divorce papers were to be signed, my wife and I stood before the same minister who had married us 16 years earlier and renewed our vows and started all over again. And when my little girl got married, she and her husband stood before that same minister and he began them on their journey. And today, my wife is my best friend. I love her with all of my heart. She is beside me and in my thoughts every hour of every day. She is the greatest support that I possibly could have. And I want you to meet her. She's right here. Please stand up.
I believe in miracles. I'm looking at a room full of them. And I am one. And so in closing, I would like to say to all of you, did you know that you are my heroes? And you are all the things that I want to be. And together, together we can all soar like eagles. Because he is the wind beneath our wings. I love you very much.